Hello, I hope you're having a really lovely start to the busy holiday season. I know this time of year can be super hectic, uh, jam-packed full of commitments, social events, things we've got to wind up before the year comes to a close. So thank you so much for taking the time to fit me into your busy schedule. This is episode 13. I have to say, if you had asked me a couple of years ago if I would be hosting a podcast, I would have said absolutely no way, impossible, could never happen. And here I am. Uh, tried to get out one every couple of weeks, so up to 13 episodes, pretty good, pretty happy with that. Today's episode, I get to interview two new social workers. So I have a chat with Joe and Alice, uh, who have started their own newsletter. So I found them through their newsletter, uh, which is Social Work Talk Quarterly. And uh, yeah, so Joe is doing her final year of her Masters of Social Work and is currently supporting caseworkers working with vulnerable families and children. And Alice is a social worker working in a residential education setting and she's recently graduated from her Masters of Social Work. So I hope you enjoyed today's episodes. Joe and Alice share with the audience some of the things that they've learned uh, through their journey, some of the challenges that they faced on placement, and some of the things that they just weren't prepared for uh, about the profession, things that they didn't quite know if learning in a book really applied in a real-life story, real-life setting, and how they worked around some of those things. So without any further introduction, here is my interview with Joe and Alice. Welcome to the uh, Inside Social Work podcast. This is episode 13. Uh, I'm here with Joe and Alice who have started a social work newsletter. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Alice. Hi, Hi. thank you. Uh, we had a bit of an intro about you before. So do you want to fill in the gaps and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing and the things you're putting out there in the world? Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Um, yeah, so my name is Joe, and I'm currently getting through my Masters of Social Work program. So just have my placement to do and almost there. Um, I switched up to part-time a little bit so that I could work a little bit. And working with um, a lot of uh, caseworkers who work with a lot of families and children, so supporting them in that role. So, yeah, I'm almost done. Placement next year. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I my name's Alice and I work in an education setting in a boarding school. Um, it's kind of, I guess the best way to describe my role is like stay at home mum in a co-parenting situation with other staff members and, and the kids' parents as well. So yeah, I'm kind of a jack of all trades and hoping to become a master of at least one of them over the time that I'm working there. Awesome. And tell us a little bit about the newsletter because that's how I found you. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll speak on that. So, uh, that, so basically it started off as in a class, which we were challenged to do an assessment, which was not your standard sort of write-up assessment. We had to do what was called a video essay, and I'd never come across that before. And it was basically presenting a lot of information into a five-minute slot. So it really got me thinking about sort of how in our degree cohort, we already had like quite a rich resource of people already there. And I was very mindful that sometimes it's really easy to think, oh, like once we finish university that's when we can start building connections and networking sort of hate that word but networking um and I thought well you know we can already start now because we basically already have it so the newsletter was basically just to start off and introduce who we are as the masters of social work students and also it was really interesting to see that we actually a lot of the students 
local as well as international had such a range of different backgrounds. Um, you know, communications, media, there were ones that uh, came had psychology in their background. Uh, a lot of them had like, yeah, they'd started their own NGOs, like ad- addressing issues in their home, to, like places of like Bangladesh and those kinds of things. Yeah. So, yeah. It was, yeah, it was, and it was really quite diverse. So it was really interesting to see once we had that, um, just to develop it a little bit and actually be able to share a lot of those social work stories, which I think when we came together and met together in the university space, everybody sort of came there as students, but then we didn't recognise that actually everybody has an amazing background that they bring into that space. So that's where it started off. And um, initially I was working on it and Alice joined me. (laughs) I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, Joe and I were in um, doing the same master's program. I graduated a year before her. So, yeah, it's it's been really exciting to kind of move from just being about our networks at university and now kind of moving into more of a space where we're saying, like, we're young social workers or social workers to be and there's so many issues in our field. How are people tackling these? And let's hear from the experts in their field in a really like conversational way that doesn't require the password to the university's library to kind of access their journal articles. And I think how like change from student and going into professional really sort of reflects in the newsletter as well, because it's changed, we've changed the focus as well. And it's really sort of getting those stories from professionals. And whilst we started with the students, it's also recognizing and tracking some of those students into their professional roles. So that's a little bit of what it is. Awesome. And I'll put a link into the show notes at the end how people can get in touch with you and get um, the editions of the newsletter. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks. Uh, what's a, what's it called? Social Work Talk. Yeah, we refocused it. Um, and it was it's really about what Alice had said earlier about having those conversations. So, yeah, we decided, yeah, we'll change to social work talk. And it's really about also having those stories which are quite interesting but maybe not as well known and sharing it in a space where maybe, you know, somebody can read it and think, oh, I didn't realise that was part of social work. I didn't realise you could do that. So social work talk, that's it. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds like we thought of similar things in two different mediums. Yeah, definitely. I think sometimes I think like, oh, wow, it'd be like, yeah, doing that kind of hearing people's stories and having it in a written down medium is just, it's a really lovely way of capturing a, what's going on for people and how they're, yeah, addressing a lot of the issues we see in social work. And I really like your progress. Like you said, it's already started to change from very student focused and what the students are doing to moving through people as they progress in their profession. Yeah, and I think that's what drew us to your podcast as well, Marie, was, you know, as students, like social work, when you first get thrown into it, is so overwhelming. You need to be like woke, you need to be aware of your own privilege, but you're also having to work in systems that don't appreciate that you're woke and that you accept your own privilege. You're constrained in a lot of ways, people expect a lot of you. And like, it's just so lovely to kind of hear your podcast and you say like, yeah, being a student's hard. Let's chat about like the things that nobody teaches you, like boundaries in social work and how do you manage boundaries and kind of like also being in a highly relational field of work. So, yeah, like I think that's what's so lovely about your podcast too. Yeah. And just on that, I was just going to say sometimes there is a lot of pressure to feel that you do because you are at a master's level or whatever that you need to 
come into something knowing everything and being the expert. And so I think it is nice to sort of break down that barrier of actually we can be a little bit more approachable and it just makes it a lot easier to actually approach certain things, which sometimes when it's sort of wrapped up in academia, it can be really daunting. Yeah, I like your point of not needing to be the expert and I think actually thinking that way might work in professional settings when we kind of are talking about different theories and, you know, we've learned this through a randomised control trial, but when you're working with people, they don't care about that. They want to know that you get them. Yeah, totally. Um, How do you find starting to integrate that? So you've got all the theory, you've learnt it probably, it's coming out of your ears now. How do you find that translation from all the theoretical process and knowing it's so relational and then having all these um, different models and frameworks to go from, how does that come out day to day? Yeah, I mean, well, for me, I find that understanding the theories, whilst I don't know all of them, I can touch on and recognise and identify where it comes up in different aspects of work. And it's not always clear. It's sometimes a process of me at the end of the day or after I've done a particular thing that I'll begin to reconcile like, oh, that's what that theory is about because I can actually have a material understanding of, oh, that's what it actually is. And sometimes it's not having that theory in mind at all, but it's more so just that process about, okay, so when I've gone through and studied, I can understand how to research something or if I don't understand who can I connect to to find out that information, it might be a sort of like the process around doing something which sort of filters into the workspace. But then at the same time, there are some things that no amount of study and theoretical theoretical knowledge prepares you for. Like sometimes you just have to be thrown in and you got to think on your feet. And so I feel in the work that I'm in at the moment, that sort of experience where you just like, you just need to know how to react. You've got to, yeah, think on your feet. And I think that that's really helpful too. And I think with that sort of situation, you just need to be put into that mm. scenario. And yeah, the theory doesn't make sense until <laughs> you have to apply it. Yeah, and it's not until later on that you might reflect on it or something. Um, and then at least I suppose that's where that idea and understanding of reflective practice helps me. But at the same time, sometimes you just got to go with it and run with whatever comes up in yeah. the day. Yeah, I I think for me it's really interesting because I'm in a parenting role as a 27-year-old with no children. Um, So, yeah, I'm responsible for about 50 um, kids between the ages of 11 and 19. So for me, like, a lot of applying the theory, I had an argument with a kid the other day about whether or not you have more banoffee pie and (laughs) the argument went on for an hour and I was just like, what is wrong with this kid? Why doesn't she understand no? And then I reflected on it I was like, oh, it's because I kept talking, you know, like for me, there was that kind of like theory about reflective practice in in the sense of like that interaction didn't go the way I was hoping. How did I contribute to that? I think that's been a really important like part of, yeah, like studying is actually having that sense of like the client actually isn't responsible for how how this situation goes. I am. And so, yeah, like I find the theories we've learned at university and particularly the way we think about social work and think about clients really helpful in those settings. And yeah, like the more I work with teenage girls, the more I realize adults have no idea how to care for them in a, like a listening sense. Like we often assume what they think. Yeah. And so it's been really helpful to work with a client in a really like 
intimate setting of like, you know, like I'm there when they go to bed and when they wake up, like that's been a really important time of, yeah, applying those theories. So did she get the banoffee pie? No, she was, she had a, she told me she was like, had a stomach ache. I was like, no. <laughs> I'm like, 18 kid. Like you should know that dairy products do not mix well with the stomach ache. I, like, I don't know what to tell you. I never knew what a banoffee pie was till this year. And there's a donut shop in the city that makes a banoffee pie flavored donut. Oh. And I, I never knew what it was. For those who don't know, it's like caramel, it's banana, it's cream, it's all things good, really. It makes me think of that episode of Friends where Rachel tries to make a trifle and it's half a shepherd's pie, like it's just, you know, like a layer of beef and onion and then cream. and Exactly. I like what you said around the listening to someone. Like I find that, um, you know, sometimes, and, and I'll do it in my personal life as well as at work where it's like, you're kind of just waiting for the person to be quiet so you could just give you a bit of advice. Yeah. So it's not really listening. It's just sort of like, I've got the answer. If you just stop talking, now I can give it to you. But that's not really building that connection for someone. And sometimes they, they just want to be heard and understood. Yeah. And I think like working with young people, it's for me what's really important is not penalising them for being young. Mm-hmm. You know, like now I realise that, you know, you go through a really difficult period with your mum between the ages of like 13 and 19 and then as you get older you maybe can understand your mum a bit better and you can get into a positive relationship with them but me as a 27 year old telling a 17 year old who's in the thick of anger management issues with her mum that's not helpful because she hasn't been through that process of realizing her mum's a real person and not just her mum so yeah there is that sense of like there are just some things I can't I can't tell you, you have to find out yourself. And I think that's a really big part of social work as well that I'm discovering this year. But I think that's a really good example of how, as a professional, you're integrating theory. So you're looking at adolescent development and you need to be aware. And, And sometimes if you move across sectors, you might forget some of those things where you think that's actually what's happening in the brain and how do you empower them within those boundaries to you know, still advocate for them, but then still realise that you might just need to kind of figure this out on your own as safely as possible and then providing that education to parents. Because I think, I mean, I have a particular interest in working with um, adolescents and I think it's a really misunderstood time. Mm, I would say so too. It's that thing where like anytime a parent tells you they have a problem with their kid, I'm like, the child with no autonomy is usually not the problem. It's actually the parents involved. And that's a really tricky situation to be in when the, you're, like the parents are literally paying me to fix their child. And so that's a really interesting space to be in as well. Mm. How did you kind of feel, you know, you mentioned before, you both kind of alluded to this around sometimes you just kind of didn't know quite where to start or you're just thrown in the deep end. So how do you, how do you kind of grapple that kind of being new to the field and, um, having worked in similar areas while you're studying, how did you integrate it all? Look, it's integrating it for me is more of um, like that does take some time. But if I'm sort of working on something and I'm in the situation and I don't really have that luxury of having that contemplative thought, it's really sort of having around me the people who I know are going to be able to support me to do a particular thing or it's part of that is also recognizing okay I really don't understand this particular thing but who can I go to who can sort of comp- not compensate but 
offer that understanding that I don't have. So a lot of it is also, you know, um, reaching out and recognising which other professionals have the expertise that are necessary to get something done. And it's about being curious. And for me, it's always not feeling intimidated by all of these professionals around me. So I have so many caseworkers around me who have a lot of experience, like years, years of experience working with some very interesting families. So it's, you know, and sometimes you're just coming out of uni and recognising that not all of the caseworkers that I work with might have, you know, a master's in social work. They might have some other training in a related field um, and some, and just sort of recognising and working with that and listening. So sort of, you know, also what Alice was saying about listening, what I do find, and I find it interesting too, is that I do have those moments as well where I just... I hear part of what's being said, but I'm already preparing the answer. But I think what happens is that stops me from really listening because I sort of cut off at a particular stage and sort of like, yeah, I'm preparing the answer for the first half of what you said. But for me, it's just knowing that I can like branch out and reach out to other people and I don't, I'm not going to have the answer to everything. It's just not practical that I'm going to hold the answers to absolutely every single situation. Yeah, definitely. I think um, Joe and I were talking before we started recording this podcast. We we're talking about our fieldwork experience. And I think that's a really interesting time for a lot of students because we're often put into fields where the person who is our supervisor actually isn't a social worker. Um, and so you kind of have to become really resourceful, like Joe was saying, finding those people who are social workers that you can reach out to and say, uh, look, I feel like my boundaries are being crossed or I'm in so deep with this family. I don't even know where to start. They're so complex. Or even just like being able to reach out to your managers or whoever your supervisor is who's not a social worker and say, you worked in this field for a long time. So tell me like, how, how do you, like, what's your practice theory? What What do you find helpful in this is a really interesting space to be in as a student because, yeah, you are having to kind of use the theories that you've been taught while also integrating the reality that community work is often not social work or it's partly social work or there's lots of people who have experience in community work but not don't come from that um, social work background as well. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of the students I'm working with on placement find where you might be in an organisation where you're the only social worker. So you you're thrown in the deep and even more so because you're trying to integrate something and the people that you're leaning on for a bit of support might have some overlapping theories and ideas, but sometimes they have a very different way of viewing things. And that can be hard because you're in a vulnerable position being a student on placement, but then you're also trying to challenge some of those misconceived ideas or things that, you know, especially I've got a lot of students working in the education setting around, um, classroom management and discipline and they're like well no I'm a social worker I can't I can't tell someone off for something and then be the school counsellor like that that doesn't kind of fit well with those frameworks yeah absolutely how did you I mean what tips would you give for people in those situations so either from personal experience or from some of the people you've worked with um, in your cohort around you know you've talked about reaching out to others and, and you know you mentioned earlier, Joe, around finding, you know, using your research skills to kind of find that gap in your knowledge to bring that back in. 
Uh, any other kind of more practical things that you advise people to do or even just to make them feel less alone, like they're not the only ones going through that? Um, we, Because we were in placements that didn't have social workers, I always had a external social um, external supervisor who was um, a social worker come and be my supervisor as like an external thing once a week for about an hour. I found those sessions so valuable because they're a person who is outside of the organisation and when, particularly in NGOs, you can often come across things where you're like, how on earth has this been allowed practice, for example? You can talk to your supervisor about it and they're often, because they're a lot older and have some experience, able to say, here's the bigger picture of what's actually going on in terms of NGOs or in terms of community work or, you know, FACS, which is the um, the New South Wales Child Protection Agency. So, you know, they're really great at kind of providing that bigger picture, but then also they can totally step in for you. One of my supervisors had to step in for an international student who was experiencing racism in their workplace. And because he was able to be honest with her and tell her, she stepped in and really solved a problem that he should never have had to face. And so, yeah, really rely on your external supervisors. And if you don't have one, contact your university and your lecturers who you trust because it's actually their responsibility to provide some level of duty of care over your well-being or your own placement. And, I mean, with us here during placement, we did have a lot of international students in our cohort. And I think in addition to what Alice was saying about having um, external supervisors, because I thought my external supervisor was really great. Mm. She just knew so much. Um, Sometimes it's also important to sort of understand that international students and sort of what I observed and would hear was that they can speak up, that it's okay, like you don't need to be dealing with this and you shouldn't have to deal with it. And so sometimes it's just having those conversations to say it's okay, it's not like a complaint or anything, it's just recognising that this is happening, it shouldn't be happening and we've got to work around it to actually like resolve it, whether it means going to a different placement or just sorting something out in the current placement. So I thought that was really helpful as well to just also sort of on a, you know, colleague-friend level to have those conversations to open it up to then go on to further discussing it with academics and then also external advisors. Yeah, and I think just one other thing I'd say is that for a lot of these NGOs, for example, that don't have social workers, they're actually thrilled that they have a student social worker who's there. I found in both my placements that my supervisor and managers, neither of who were social workers but had um, social theory backgrounds, they wanted to hear what I had to say and they were actually really interested in the critiques I had of their organisation or the insights I had into maybe what was going on with the clients that they weren't sharing with the current um, staff workers there. So if you feel safe, like ask them if you can talk to them about some things you're struggling with or some ethical issues you've come across because often for managers in particular, particularly if they're good managers, this stuff is like goldmine for them. It means that you're doing the hard work of reflection for them. I think that's a really interesting thing because it is a lot of them do get students on placement because they value that role. Um, It's not always easy work trying to train someone new. And it's really 
I find a lot of people actually do do expect you to come up to them and say, I've noticed this and here is my solution to that problem. And I think that's really hard because you're flipping from being a student and some people have gone through high school into study and haven't really worked in a role where they're given that kind of professional responsibility to actually have the courage to say, this is what I think and this is how I want to advocate for this person when that's what the organisation is kind of hoping that you'll do in a way. Definitely. I I think for some of our international students and our friends who are international students, they did find that trickier because they didn't have the same privileges that Joe and I have as people with Australian accents for a start and an Australian education, which often really differs from the education you would get in Nepal or India. And that's not speaking on the quality. All of our students have high quality education. It's just the educations were asking different things of them. So in Australia, there's a lot more responsibility placed on the learner to be a questioner and a critiquer. Whereas in India, Joe was in India a couple of weeks ago. Do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, I was just going to. So I was lucky enough to go over to a social work college in the south of India, in Kerala State, and that was part of uni. And it was really interesting because, oh, I just had so many questions. And it was also whilst they were also master's students, even the way that they structured the day was really different. So when I explained to them, oh yeah, I'll sort of have maybe one full day seminar for a once a month, they couldn't quite fathom it because it's basically nine to five, five days a week, um, doing part of their field edu- education on a Saturday morning. So even about how, and there isn't really much um, I guess flexibility. So this is sort of the structure of how things are and you know, the relationship between student and academic is very different. It's a little bit more hierarchical and that's just what I noticed. And so I sort of had a bit of understanding of in the Australian context when you have students coming from that understanding to question what I suppose they'd see as their superior. So they're, you know, an academic. It's it's not going to be something that's just automatically, yeah, I'm just going to question my academic because if you understand where they're coming from it's not something and it's not something that I experienced in the you know two little two week period that I had there yeah. and that's nothing that was not even a proper snapshot I suppose but yeah. it's just very interesting to see that contrast and it really helps me understand where they were coming from and also the other thing too which I came to understand was whilst I come from that you know, somebody might come from that background and you come to understand it. I also had to understand I couldn't impose what I thought was the right thing on them. And that's something that I came to struggle with because <laughs> I had, you know, a, a friend who also was a national student and was saying, you know, this isn't allowed, you know, you shouldn't, it, this is good enough. But then I had to step back and think, oh, wait a second. But then I'm also telling this person, like, this is how things should be. So I'm imposing sort of, I guess, my values on that person. So it's a really delicate balance Mm. um yeah yeah it's interesting (laughs) I think it touches on something we've spoken about before around how you I mean you touched on it briefly around that it's not okay sometimes in some cultures to challenge um an academic or someone in leadership and that's really hard when you become a social worker especially in Australia we have advocacy is one of the huge pillars of our work and if we can't advocate for the client then that's a big part of our job that we're not doing. And a lot of the time that goes against someone else's opinion. So you have to balance that in order for the, the, 
the client that I'm working with or this group of people that are quite marginalized, I need to sometimes go against my boss. I need to maybe, you know, make a child protection report against the parents or I need to go against this system or I need to um, be a whistleblower for something and I need to go against current political discourse. Like that takes a lot of courage and some people might really struggle with that in an, um, in our sort of way of working. Yeah, I, I think... And, like, even as a woman, like, I find it really hard to say no to men in authority over me. And so, like, even I have to be really reflective where I feel intimidated in situations with, um, like, some of the my, like, um, superiors at work. Yeah, like, it's a really important thing to reflect and be like, why am I intimidated by this person? You know, like, I am a valid person in this role because I've been given the role. So I actually need to overcome the fact that I feel intimidated, but then also feel free to bring it up with them and say, you know, when you use that tone of voice with me, it makes me feel really intimidated. And I don't think that's the relationship you and I should have. So like, let's talk about that is also a really important thing to do. That's interesting. Yeah, that that's a good one. Cause I often um, get people to think of some of their colleagues, especially if they're a little bit more oppositional and you want to kind of, you want to agitate for a bit of changes. Why not? have that same lens that you have with clients for some of your colleagues. So see them, you know, with make that most generous assumption that what they're doing is not coming from a bad place, even if it completely flopped. And how would you bring them on that journey of change just as you would a client? So how do you slowly educate them? So just like you would with someone you're working with, it's, you know, the psychoeducation, it's slowly being curious because the second you put up that wall and you're oppositional, you've lost them, even if you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Have you had any experiences like that that you'd like to share? Oh. <laughs> um, well, yes. So, I, I mean, um, if we talk about our field placements, only because, you know, there are a lot of students who go field, through field placements and they can be really great, but sometimes it doesn't always work out. So, in one of my placements, um, it was a research-based placement and, there just there wasn't a shared understanding between myself and the academic, and I think that was one thing that we could have probably changed is just to start off in like in, at the introduction level of really understanding. So this is what I'm coming to the table with. These are my skills. These are the things that I'm not sure about. These are the things that I maybe want to you know be able to do better. But then it was also coming in from I suppose different cultural understanding. So I went into an organisation that was, you know, predominantly, you know, well-to-do Caucasian women. And as a woman of colour coming into that space, I mean, some people might just consider it, like it's not a thing, you're a person in that space and it doesn't matter, but it is important for me to also see other people like me in workspaces so whilst it sounds really trivial, it was also a situation when I did have problems, I felt like I was limited as, as limited um, in who I could go to because I felt that if I have an issue with my uh, supervisor, then it makes it a little difficult to approach the supervisor when they're also, you know... Um, and Your line manager too. Yeah, yeah, so it made it difficult. Well, in that situation, it was really helpful to then have that external supervisor, like Alice had brought up earlier, because she was outside of that and it made it a lot easier to talk through those things. Um, and it did change the tone of the placement, you know, like towards the end, it made it a little difficult, but 
always the optimist. I was like, this is okay. We'll get, we'll get through this. I'll make something out of it. So at the end of it, you know, we came and we did um, like a little symposium about research placements and student expectations and responsibilities and also research placements. Look, they're not the most flashiest of placements. And I think it's also because, and this is what came out of the little symposium, which was held with um, academics from the uni as well as students who had undertaken research placements, was research in a university context is not, is not exciting it's not a good time for anyone like it's it's, it's an experience that nobody ever really <laughs> no all phd students i know are in a moment of crisis at all times so it was also talking about okay well maybe it's about how we word it maybe we should call it a project placement and maybe link in with community organizations and work on a project in a team rather than just maybe focusing on a literature review or something like that where it's a little bit more solitary so we came up with some really good suggestions out of that um, and that was really trying to make a positive out of it. But, yeah, definitely there have been those situations where it was also a clash of values but then it was really helpful to have that external advisor to then speak through and because she'd been through, she was a social worker and had been in many different organisations, um, government as well as NGO, and it was really good to have somebody here what I was saying, but also understand where the conflict could be, but then also to validate that some of those concerns that I had were very real. Because sometimes when you're in that situation and you're the only person in that situation, sometimes you think you minimise it a little bit to make it not a problem anymore. So for me, that really helped having that social worker in the external supervisory situation yeah one of the I mean and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this one of the pieces of advice I give people we talk a lot about external supervision and some will say oh you know my my work doesn't provide supervision and I guess my answer to that is but part of your professional integrity is if you've got a gap in your skill set or if you're at risk of burnout you need to be sourcing that from somewhere and so I mean I I kind of put a bit of pressure back on people that if you're organization doesn't support it and you're not in a position to change jobs or for whatever reason that part of your ethical responsibility to make sure you're practicing at your best is to go and find that externally and you might have to fund it yourself and claim it back on tax as pd um, and it might sound a little bit harsh but i really think that sometimes we need to kind of just take some responsibility for our own education or gaps in knowledge because yeah. we're working with really vulnerable clients we're working with you know we've got the risk of burnout we've got the risk of compassion fatigue we have a whole bunch of things to juggle if your workplace isn't supportive and you know that you, you're the only one who can do something about it and I mean even talking with caseworkers um, about supervision whilst we might have supervision in the workplace it might not be the supervision that in relation to maybe your career development or dealing with things like vicarious trauma Sometimes the families that you work with really, of course, it's your work and it takes precedent, but it does then become a situation where am I going to have to look outside? So, yeah, even some of the caseworkers that I've spoken with, they do, you know, talk about having that individual supervision outside of the workplace. And it's interesting because I, you know, haven't had to take that step yet, but it's at least something that I know of. Yeah. I, I, I will say, like, as a new grad, um, I'm lucky that I'm in a full-time, well-employed, like I'm from a private school as well. So, you know, my salary is like good for a graduate. 
But for many graduates coming out, they're looking at like less than the median average wage of an Australian. And we're just not prepared for the expenses that come with being a social worker. Like that's not something we talk about at university. That's not something that we're talking about, you know, when they're looking at graduating us like in our last one. No one's sitting down with us being like, you need to budget $200 a month for professional development and signing up to the AASW if that's what, you know, you feel you need to do. Like there's no conversation about how registration might be something that's coming into social work. So you really do get blindsided as a student. You're brand new in in the industry. Many of us, um, we've just done our like 600 hours of placement. So we are broke AF. (laughs) And then we are, the, and then we're told like also can you please cough up $250 to be part of the ASW and meet the CPD requirements like it's huge and so I think yeah we need to be talking more about the realities of being a social worker in a really practical sense because yeah you get blindsided. I also I mean it's so true and I think that you have to see it as an investment, not as a burden, that if you can put those things in place, yes, you know, I mean, supervision could be anywhere between $150 to $200 a month and um, some of your membership stuff, but you you can do the work for longer and to a higher quality over the course of your career and you're not going to have that moment of burnout or just leave a job because it's so horrific and not have another job yet lined up and you just have to escape. So I think you make that money back over your professional career and your life satisfaction. But I I even think, like, if you're not doing fieldwork education, which in our degree you do in the last semester of each year, there's no expectation of supervision in your, your, like, study either. So you're actually, like, unless an academic is worried about your studies, you're not meeting one-to-one to discuss and you're not meeting even, there's no even suggestion that you meet as students and talk through what's going on. Mm-hmm. I know in psychology that one of the requirements of their students once they have done their master's is that they do meet as a cohort and provide peer supervision. And so I think there's lots of spaces as well where we can be supporting students who are blindsided and out in their first year mm-hmm. that maybe would come with some level of registration with social work. But, yeah, uh, those are just some thoughts that I have on that. Rich, it's ironic because you would have those conversations with the supervisor. Yes. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be. I mean, I think people also get scared that it doesn't have to be that always that one-on-one, I pay, you talk, we talk for an hour. Like, I, I, you know, throughout my career I've attended peer supervision and I've found other colleagues who I meet with regularly as well as having one-on-one supervision to work on a particular skill set. So, you can, I mean, a lot of supervisors, you might be able to talk to them and say, can we, you know, have a 90-minute session, but there's going to be three of us and you do like a peer reflective group. Like there are more cost-effective ways and there are things that can suit the needs of your organisation. And it's, I think it's really important to reach out to a few people and ask them what their skills are, what areas they've worked in, because I don't, I don't like this idea that you can be a generalist and be a jack-of-all-trades because you might miss some really fundamental parts of that industry if you're not familiar with it. Absolutely. And I think for people doing fringe social work, which is like a word I use to describe people doing social work stuff in non-social work roles, it it is actually really hard to find those people who are doing the same kind of stuff as you that you can talk about. I know for me, like there's just not that many social workers in boarding schools. So most people are coming from an education perspective. So I've had to work really hard to find those social workers in education to be like, 
let's talk about like sex stuff. Let's talk about like, you know, all of these things that come with being in residential care. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because I had that come up in one of my boundaries conversations with someone who worked in a residential setting, so not education, but they're like, you know, what do you do if you, you're knocking on the door, you're telling them to get ready and they're just standing there in a towel, giving each other pedicure. It's like they're half naked. Yeah. What do I do? Do I hustle them? Do I close the door? Do I tell them that we're running late? Like there's some yeah. of those, you know, the boundaries stuff you need to be having those active conversations. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, what do you do when a kid, you know, you take them to the doctors and they have a pap smear done and they're traumatised? Like, how do you talk through with them in, like, a way that appreciates the fact that I'm a woman too, I've had a pap smear, they've had a pap smear, like, let's chat about that. That's a really, like, strange line to be walking with kids, talking about your vaginas, you know? So, like, yeah, and that's where it's really important to have those supervisory relationships where I can say, like, I feel like I've crossed a boundary like we I but I feel like it's really important for me to talk about how important pap smears are as part of a sexually active woman's life so how do I manage that boundary well we've covered heaps (laughs) (laughs) do you have any kind of parting words of wisdom I mean we've been we've been chatting for for a bit and we've given a lot of people some different ideas and things they could um do and I really like the idea of you start you know your symposium and actually and all the university professors I've worked with and all the the university that I've been involved with they are so passionate about improving the student experience Mm -hmm. and sometimes that gets lost in translation but if someone came to them and said look these are some of our ideas how can we have a you know multi-directional conversation how can we have a forum how can we they would be so willing to listen to those things so I really like that you took that initiative to bring them on board and say how can we make this better because being at the end of your um course you could have just said well stuff it we're done I don't mind oh trust me I had those thoughts but I was like, <laughs> you know what let's make the most of this let's end on a positive note and it was really good because I think that even if those conversations did occur between the supervisor and the student it might not have had as much weight if you because we have more people in the room we have more students and more um academics but just on parting words I think for me it's Look, I've just found give it a shot. Like even if something seems ridiculously impossible, if you're sort of willing to give it a shot, there's, there'll be some way that you can work out how to get it done. And I've found that being curious about something really helps mm. in approaching things that might seem really challenging, just coming from that space of I, I'm not going to know everything, but if I'm curious about it, maybe I'll ask the questions that will help to get to figuring this out. Awesome. Beautiful advice. And how can people get in touch with you and keep an eye on what you're doing and what you're putting out there? Um, So our latest issue coming out is on community development and kind of community activism. Um, So, yeah, we've interviewed quite a number of people who have a lot of experience in the area. So we were really excited about that. You, Marie, will also be having a a little... Ah. So check that out. Um, You can find us on Facebook under Social Work Talk or you can contact us via email at swtalk19 at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Wow, what an awesome interview. Joe and Alice have done some really great things and they're only just beginning. So check them out. Go to the Social Work Talk Quarterly uh, Facebook group 
and check out their latest newsletter and and stay in touch. Uh, Don't forget to join uh, my Facebook group, Inside Social Work. You can check me out on the website. And if you think this podcast is something your other social work friends or colleagues or other allied health professionals would find helpful, send it to them, share it. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. It makes it much easier for people to find me. Uh, And yeah, if you've got some ideas, I'm starting to plan season two. So reach out. You can send a voice memo to Marie, M-A-R-I-E at InsideSocialWork.com or send me a direct message on Facebook, uh, type something into the Facebook group. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what you like, what you don't like and what you'd love to hear more about. Have a wonderful holiday season and I'll chat to you soon.